Welcome to the Tabletop Summary, where we dive a little bit deeper into why we love board games. Strap in and prepare for a deep sea adventure. Here are your hosts. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. I am your host, Josh, and with me, as always, is... I'm Andrew. Today's guest in the submarine is Chris Anderson of the Board Game Workshop. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So, I was saying beforehand, I got, I'm getting to meet a lot more new people since starting this podcast who are in the board game community, mostly through Andrew and everyone he knows. So, how about you go ahead... Um, Give us a moment to tell our listeners and us more about yourself, who you are in the board game community, and what you like to do in it. So um, I am the host of the Board Game Workshop, which is a board game design podcast, and uh, for the last five years, also an annual design contest. Um, that's how I met Andrew, through, he was a judge, is a judge for the design contest. Thank you very much for your help, Andrew. Always appreciate it. The least I could do. Um also a game designer. My most popular game would be Invino Morte from Buttonshy. Um, I've done a couple of other things released through Buttonshy, including Tempest Quest, Ooh. which is a reworking of my game Tempest Imperium, which was a free uh, print-and-play release, which I am now reworking for my first release from my new publishing company, Ventic Games, and that'll be Tempest Imperium Eternum, which um, hopefully I get all together soon. It's still in the design process i do have an artist though working on the graphics so it's it's getting there it's going to be real nice and i know uh, yeah that's that's a bunch of stuff about me side note listeners i'm a big fan of Invino morte i have a lake house where uh i have that game available it's a wine themed lake house so it fits but it's also really a great game for groups so i highly recommend if you've never played it give it a chance yes definitely. you have a lake house i do yes doesn't everybody <laughs> Not, not me. Not me, says the, the poor game designer right over here. <laughs> I have a house uh, near a lake, which is uh, actually a terrible thing because water is bad for houses. Yes, it generally <laughs> I mean, I live near the ocean. Like, I live about 10 minutes from the beach. Not on the beach, but I live 10 minutes from it. And those houses on the beach, insurance rates are just they, bonkers. And houses mm, are expensive. But indeed. You know, this isn't a real estate podcast. This is uh, a, but it could this, be. <laughs> it could be. Let's talk about equity. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Well, like if we ever have an episode where we're talking about like for sale or something like that or suburbia, we can talk about the real estate market. That'll be that'll be a riveting, a riveting episode, I'm sure. And both of those are really good games, so I'm fine with that. That's fine. <laughs> I haven't played Suburbia or For Sale, I think. Oh, right. So, okay. Which which one first, guys? Suburbia or for sale? Oh, for I've sale. never played for sale, but I think I'm more interested in that myself. Yeah, For Sale is one of those genuine, classic, simple games that you can play with anybody who are non-gamers, and they pick it up pretty quickly. So highly recommend that one. All right, so we're excited to hear Chris's amazing story, but uh, we probably need to get the sub ready. So how about we talk about some recently played games and head into our pre-launch? Let's do it! The pre-launch. Get to know us and our guests. Josh, what have you played recently? So, before listeners, just so you know, before the podcast, we actually talk a little bit about the episode, and you know, we get to know each other a little bit. And uh, Andrew and Chris were talking about during how during the uh, design contest they were judging recently the how how many roll and move games they were going to judge for the kids category, and we got into a little discussion about roll and moves and maybe some of the frustrations 
we have with the modern roll and move mechanism in games. Well, today I'm talking about a game that does roll and move super well, and that's Echidna Shuffle. Um, Echidna Shuffle is a game by What's a Palag Games. Um, This is my favorite kids game. I'm just going to say it. This is so good. Uh, Basically, um, in the Echidna Shuffle, you have these adorable little Echidna figurines. They're like plastic toys. Yes. They they are absolutely cute. I I saw this uh, when I was at TantrumCon last February, and me and my wife picked it up because we were trying to find a game we could play with my little kid. And this hit the nail on the head. So in the Echidna Shuffle, you are playing a bunch of Echidnas trying to collect bugs and return them back to your log. And that's pretty much as complicated as as it gets. (laughs) You have a board that has a bunch of these little echidna figurines on it. And this board has spaces that have directional arrows. And based on where that echidna is on the board, it has to follow certain directional arrows. So the puzzle of the game involves the player rolling a die and then moving as many echidnas as they want, as many spaces as they want, according to the number of spaces given to them by the die. So roll and move. You roll five, you get to move five echidnas as far as you want. Um, you get to basically have five actions. You move a kid to once, that's one action, yada, yada, yada. What makes it fun, though, is that it balances itself out that once you roll a die, if you roll a low number, the next turn you're going to have a high number. So if you roll two this time, next time you'll have a seven. Mm. What makes this really fun, though, is that the puzzle of how the arrows kind of circle around the board, almost like a whirlpool, it really gives you a little more to think about than your traditional roll move. Because yeah, you because you're all sharing echidnas. It's not just your piece. Hmm. So any echidna is up for grabs. Even if opponent has, even if there's an echidna who has an opponent's bug, you are still allowed to move that echidna. And so really, it becomes a puzzle of which echidnas do I move to either stall my opponent out and mess them up, or bring myself forward. Um, and that's an interesting enough decision for maybe like a 10, 15 minute game to really hold my attention and a kid's attention. It, this is really the best kids game I've seen come out in a little bit, a little while. It's really crunchy. You can play with probably five years old and up. And me and my wife bought it for ourselves. I'm not ashamed to admit it. We, we, we bought this game because we loved it. My, my son's not going to be able to understand this for a while, but we absolutely love this game. How do they recommend a kid shuffle from What's a Pelog? Um, Chris, what, are, what's, what's, what have you been playing recently? So I recently got a chance to play Junk Art for the first time at a family cookout. Those not familiar with Junk art, yeah, it's uh, Jay Cormier and Sang Fung Lim. It's it's a stacking game, which seems super simple. You have some blocks and you just stack them in a tower, and everything's real easy. Except the shapes are all terrible, and they've got a whole handful of mini games. Which so I had heard of junk art before. I knew it was a stacking game. I was like, oh, that's cool. I like stacking games, um, but I didn't know it was a bunch of mini games. Ah, so this is what brings up what I love and what I hate about junk art. So first, what I hate. There's a bunch of mini games, which means if you're a new player, you so you randomly select three mini games out of the cards and you put them out, and they all have very helpful little reminder icons on them, which you don't understand as a new player. So you have to go and look up the rules for every new game and go check those every time. And it's kind of a lot of overhead for what I thought was a really quick, fun game. That aside, once you understand those rules, it is a really quick, fun game, and it is stacking things with. Um, trying to follow the rules to get certain points. So sometimes you're all stacking on the same tower, which maybe you want to knock it over because that'll make it harder for your opponent. Maybe you want to make something really awkward. Maybe you want it to grow higher. Maybe you want to make sure orange pieces are touching orange pieces for bonus points. Or sometimes you're building your own stack and you're trying to do certain things. Sometimes you're giving 
cards to other players, so they have to put a certain piece on theirs. So you're trying to give them the most awkward shape to pile on. So there's tons of different ways to play, which is great, but a little tricky to start the process. Um, but it was a ton of fun. I ended up playing it twice, uh, both times with a full table of six people. Um, and I should mention that the table was a folding table that was slanted and people kept hitting it. So it was, it was an additional amount of fun, but, uh, (laughs) it, it, it opened up some interesting gameplay where normally you would not be able to put something that would roll away on your tower, but because of the way the table was slanted, it would roll into pieces and be fine. So it was, uh, it was interesting, but it was a lot of fun. I did terribly points wise, but I, I definitely recommend it on a flat table. Maybe would be great. So better or worse than Jenga on a boat? I don't think I've ever played Jenga on a boat, but Jenga <laughs> is one of my all-time favorite games. So I would say not better than Jenga because of Jenga's absolute beautiful simplicity. All right, fair enough. So I've gotten a chance to play uh, Savannah Park recently, a, a new release from Capstone, part of their family line with uh, Kramer Kriesling. Um, this one's a really interesting one for the mechanism alone. Essentially, everybody gets all the same tiles on their board, just in different spots. Then what you do is you announce the tile you're going to move on your board, and everybody else has to move that same piece on their board to an open space. But everybody has different open spaces. So you're all playing the same puzzle, but with completely different starting blocks. And it's a really cool, interesting puzzle. I really enjoyed it. The first time I played it, I did terribly because I didn't fully understand it. I played it again. And I played much, much better. So I'm curious to see how deep it's going to go in multiple plays. But in the first two, it's a thumbs up from me. And this is, that's one I've been actually on the lookout for is Savannah Park. I see it um, in the game store a lot. And, you know, Kramer and Kiesling are just such an iconic duo. It's one of the names that I just see it. I'm always willing to give it a try. Okay, well, I'm looking at our instruments. I am checking the hatches. I'm making sure we have enough crackers. I think we're ready to depart on this voyage. Any objections to this notion? Nope, let's go. Let's hear your story, Chris. Let's take our dive. So, uh, my story is about the first and last time I played The Resistance. Um, And this was many years ago, so it's going to be tricky to really dig up this accurately but we'll we'll get the emotional beats um there you go. so for just general background the resistance is a social deduction game um one of the earlier ones in the genre so more pure than a lot of the later ones basically there are i don't even remember what they're called there's the resistance and then the spies i think something like that um yeah so most people are the resistance but there's a few spies um and the number is based on the player count so this is the first time playing it. It was at a convention, so a bunch of people I didn't know, so we didn't have any that friendly background that is helpful for social deduction games. Um, and the first time I played the game, so I didn't really know what was going on. But luckily someone else there was a big fan of it and taught it, which also kind of factored into this story, so we'll, we'll add that in later. Um, we're playing with the full... What's it go up to? Does it go up to 10, maybe? I think it might be 10. There's a full table. Um, okay. So most people are the Resistance, and the Resistance is trying to pass missions. Then there are the spies, and spies are trying to fail missions without getting found out. Um, so you got to go through a number of missions. I think it's seven with the, the full number of players, which, again, it adjusts for that. Um, and the way it works is each round, there's a leader, and the leader picks some people to go on the mission. 
those people get voting cards, and then they secretly vote whether they want to pass or fail the mission. Um, now, if you're on the resistance, you want to pass, you have to pass. You don't really have a choice. You just play the pass card. But if you're a spy, you get to choose whether to pass or fail. And that's that's where the whole game comes into play. So, obviously, the spies want to fail the mission. That's the goal. Fail enough missions as the spy to ruin the resistance. But right. if you're too obvious about it, they're going to find you out, and then I forget the process, but once they know you're the spy, you're basically, you're ruined and they'll win the game. So you need to fail, but you need to fail trickily enough that no one can pin it on you. Um, right. So there's different numbers of people going onto these uh, missions, and the whole table has to vote on the mission. So the, the leader chooses the people, then everyone votes, and I may be getting this completely wrong. Like I said, it was a few years ago. Um, then everyone votes whether they want that mission to happen. And if everyone votes it down, you move on to the next one. You don't go on the mission. So but that can only happen so many times. Once it hits a certain level, like you have to go on the mission, which that'll factor into the, the second play. Anyway, so this first game, I am one of the spies, and someone else at the table is one of the spies also. The spies all know who each other are. There's a part at the beginning where everyone closes their eyes, spies open them, so you know, you know who's on your team. At least the spies do. Um, the interesting thing that happened in this game, which is what made me fall in love with it as just such a pure social deduction thing, is on one mission, me and the other spy were both chosen to go on the mission. That can be a very dangerous situation. Uh, because if both spies put in a fail card, then it's obvious two spies were on that mission. And if there's only two or three people on the mission, and I think it might have only been the two of us at this time, um, it can be very obvious who the spies are. So you don't want to put that many fails in. But if you don't fail at all, then you've missed a chance to ruin a mission because you passed because you were afraid of being found out. Um, so somehow, through just sheer luck or incredibly accurate gameplay, um, <laughs> only one of us put in a fail and the other didn't. And this was the absolute best situation because... What came of that was they were very convinced that I was a spy, but also very convinced that the other spy was definitely not. No one would think that he was a spy for the rest of the game, no matter what happened in any mission he was on. Because they, they knew he wasn't a spy because we didn't have a double fail. It was obviously me. I think near the end, I even said, yeah, I'm a spy. And it didn't matter because no one, no one would believe that he was a spy ever for the rest of the game. And we ended up going through, I think that was, so like I said, we played two games. Um, I think that was the game. We won it as quickly as you possibly could. Like we failed every mission in a row and just won the game. <laughs> it was absurd. I was like, this, this is ridiculous. Um, so we played again because it was so quick. This time I was not a spy. I was on the resistance. And this went the completely opposite way. It went to the absolute last moment the game can go. We went all the way to the seventh round where we're just on the edge of winning or losing. Um, and we kept passing on like who the, who the leader was until you were forced to do it. So it came down to this last position where it did not matter what happened. If we, if we didn't go on the mission, my team won because we were forced into it based on like the draw rules. And if we went on the mission, they knew I was on the team and I was the leader, so whatever I picked would happen anyway. So it's it very interesting to get both sides of that game from as quick as it can possibly be with really lucky guesses to just a real long battle drawn out to the very last tiebreaker. But it's, uh, it was so much fun. Oh, and like I said, the, the guy that was there that was teaching it, 
he was a very boisterous fellow. And that played into people were convinced he was a spy because he was talking too much, but he was not. He was just a person that liked to talk. So it's very interesting how like just personalities can play, especially if you're with a table of strangers at a convention. Like there's there's so little to go on that you can manipulate the group so easily. That's my favorite thing to do in games, just lie to people and manipulate them, which I don't get to do in real life. So it's fun to do it in a game. I feel like like in general, though, those social deduction games are definitely for the smooth talking, for the talkers, for the the emotional manipulators, for the people who like to put on a show. Like those games really shine with those people around. If you get a bunch of, uh, you know, quiet people. Yeah, let's go with quiet people. People who are a little more introverted, that game's going to struggle. So you kind of want some extroverted people to come to the table and bring a lot of personality and and put on a show. Yeah, they definitely, they create the ocean that the game is played in. And without them, it it just don't work. That's one of the fabulous things about social seduction games is that each type of personality there is in the world has a spot for it to shine. There is the quiet, you know, the quiet introvert who doesn't say a lot, but is reading the room. The opportunity to kind of keep it themselves and try to keep contained and get people kissing. There's the boisterous, you know, you know, gravitant person who is making sure everyone hears what they have to say. And then there's, you know, the whatever medium in between that. You know, you got the Thors and the Lokis <laughs> all trying to figure out what each other are trying to do. I think it's important to have a mix of them in the game, too. If you have all of one personality, especially in a big group, which works best for these kinds of games... It can be very overwhelming. Like if everyone is quiet, it's going to be a lot of nothing happening. But if everyone's boisterous, it's going to be a lot of shouting over each other and everyone is accusing everyone and nothing happens. So that that yes. mid-level of some people are quiet and just paying attention. And then they can pop up and be like, oh, you said this earlier and no one else was paying attention because they're all shouting over each other. And you can Those different dynamics really play into each other very well. That's a good point. There's there's some It brings up a question about you know personalities in gaming. Like, you know, we talk about social seduction as really, it's really a personality forward uh, experience where lots of the time what your fun is predicated on the people you're playing with. Uh, but we, but more often than not, we talk about that with a lot of games. You know, it's really about the people you have around the table. Um, do you guys generally like to play with people who have similar personality types as you to maybe like, forget social seduction for a second, but like, think about like a game like an On Mars, something like Heavy, like Vital Asserter, or maybe something a little bit in between. Uh, in between that, between that scale, does personality really affect your enjoyment of the gameplay? Do you want to have different personalities? Do you want to have similar personalities? Generally, like, what do you guys like? I mean, I think to a degree, I want them to be similar to me in that I'm a very calm person. I don't get too worried or bent out of shape about a game. So I don't, I wouldn't want anyone that is very heavily invested and gets like violently upset if things go wrong. Or violently upset if things go right. Um, but I think most people would agree with that. <laughs> and you want a friendly game player. Yes, I would totally agree with that. I was going to say basically the same thing. I want the non-extremes, but everybody else is welcome at the table for me. I, I like different games for different people, but I also like how different people play different games. Um, it's also fun to play with people that I know. Like when me and my wife play games, there's a meta game there where she knows my tendencies and I know her tendencies, and that's kind of fun to play. And it's also great to go to a convention where I have no idea of anybody at the table, and I'm kind of figuring it out as we go. You know, like poker in the Wild West style, where you <laughs> set up the room and you got to lose the first, you know, five six hands to figure out how people bluff and not. That that's interesting too. 
So that, that, that really actually bleeds into what the resistance is. Like I hear so many times people who are like diehard resistance players that the more you play with one group, the better it kind of gets because you're able to hear, see the candidates and the, peop- the way the people talk, their behavioral tics and stuff like that. And so you're able to have this super interesting experience where you're really looking for the small details. Uh, are there any other games like that that you find that the more you play with one group, the better they get? Ooh. Uh, I actually am a big fan of Castles and Mad King Ludwig for this point. Like, I, I think it's interesting to see what types of tiles people go for and prefer. My wife is a big kitchens person. She wants that extra turn. I know the people who like to play more of the garden style and get all that extra money and stuff like that and play that way. So I think any game that has a good amount of depth can be played that way. And it's interesting to see the metagame that goes on with different people. So that's one of them I like. Yeah, another one that I, when you first said this, I'm like, oh, man, that's a really tricky question. Then as soon as you said Castle of Mad Queen Ludwig, I thought of uh, Sheriff of Nottingham because I learned them both the same night. Um and it's it's another game I just love because I get to lie to people. But as you're as you're lying to people and going around and making all sorts of weird deals and stuff, you can see like how different people play. Are they the kind of person that'll take a bribe easily, or can you easily trick them into not opening your bag? So they can definitely develop with a group. Well, these these are both good games. I I haven't played either of them. I just know they're good based on like the videos I've seen playing them, and I've played enough games where I know when a game is a good game. So the. Uh, you really have to like. I play test a lot of games to try to incorporate. I'm sure you guys too. They try to incorporate social seduction or social dynamic. Mm-hmm. And you know, lots of them are early stages, but lots of them are really terrible. <laughs> like there's, it does not promote. Like I'm not saying the game is terrible. Just this aspect of it. And you know, it's play. It's play testing. It's, it's okay for it to be that way. But you know, some of these really, you know, like the resistance is pretty much an evergreen at this point in the industry mm-hmm. because it hits the social aspect of social seduction so, so well. So what really makes a game great, a great social experience, a great social seduction experience, or just a great experience in general where, where the personalities of people come forward? What do you guys think? Actually, in, um, so I'm part of the Boston Game Makers Guild, and one of our members focuses almost entirely on social deduction games. So I have gone through a lot of early versions that are um, less than ideal. Um, uh-huh. But the uh, the benefit of this is we've learned like what what does work and what doesn't work in social deduction. And one of the things you run into a lot with all sorts of games that they're any type of game where there's a pure example out there, you run into the problem of I keep making this better until I eventually get to the pure example that I don't want to copy. I ran into this when I was trying to make uh, deduction games, not social deduction. I was like, oh, and you know, you can have some items, and you can get like three items and three people and three real oh, crap. I made clue again. And I would just keep making clue over and over and over again. Cause clue, I mean the roll and move part is a mess, but clue itself, like the pure deduction of like, there's like, that's, that's perfect. There's no way to make that yeah. better without complicating it. Uh, and social deduction is the same way with the resistance being one of the examples. It's like, Oh, you know, you could, uh, you could send people on missions and they could have voting cards and ah, crap. I made the resistance again, which yeah, it's a really yeah. good game, but you're trying to do something different. Um, so I think what we've decided that the, the key to social deduction is the partial reveal of information. Um, yeah. cause if it's purely unknown, it's random guessing, there's nothing there. And if it's totally known, it's just pure mathematical deduction. The social deduction mm-hmm. part, there has to be this middle ground where some players have information that others don't. So you have to believe people, 
You have to not believe people. You have to make a case why they should trust you and not someone else. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very tricky to balance that in a way, in a way that people can understand. A lot of the the playtests I've had, we've ran into issues where the games become so convoluted that mechanically, like it works. Like if you look at the math on a computer, sure, that's right. But actually trying to manage that in a game, you're like, okay, we've got these 16 decks of 30 cards each. So you got to remember half of those decks. And then you're going to tell me this and I'm going to tell you that. And everyone takes a turn backwards. You're like, wait a second, where, where are we? And there's, there has to be a simplicity to it. And it's, uh, yeah. it's a very tricky middle ground to hit. I also think that uh, social deduction games in general have a higher level of difficulty to clear the hurdle to playability. I feel like in general, yes, just like you said, you can do the math, you can, you know, find a little experiment, play around with it a little bit, but to find it, to get to a smoothness, I think is actually harder than trying to do that for a roll and write or a worker placement game or anything like that. I think the level of difficulty to get into good is much, much higher. And also it has the added problem because there's secret information of anyone making a mistake can absolutely ruin the game. Like even in the resistance, absolutely. if like I've, I've heard stories of uh, people playing resistance Avalon, where you have the Merlin character and someone was Merlin, but they thought they were on the bad side or something. So they just played like they were evil and the evil side won real easily. Yeah. So any, any little mistakes like that can absolutely derail social deduction games. I really think that the idea of being able to, have an experience that is so predicated on the personalities and on the, I mean, I have th- these games probably, they take just as much playtesting or finding as any other game, but having an experience that purely relies on the human component rather than the physical components of the game is really a feat unto itself. Like I'm not, I don't think I could design a social deduction game right now and make it as good, but Chris, you have, you know, in Vino Morte, an 18 card <laughs> social deduction game. I, if you don't mind me asking, I'd love to know what was your thought process because I've heard nothing but positive things about this oh, game. Oh, that's good to hear. Thank you. Shut up and sit down. <laughs> Shut up and sit down. Long way they rain. Get glowing <laughs> reviews about it. If you don't mind, would you share a little bit about how you came up with the idea of, you know, fitting a really good social deduction experience in just 18 cards? So, uh, actually, I did a whole episode about that where he talked to uh, Jason from Button Shy. And I cannot take a lot of credit. I sort of discovered it. I did not play test that game at all. I never, I never played it until after it was published. Um, wow. It's just, it's stupidly simple, like absurdly simple. The, the, so I look at the BGG comments and it's got a bunch of like eights, nines and tens and also a bunch of twos and threes. And the twos and threes all agree that it's not a game at all. And it's a waste of time and you should roll a die instead of playing it. Um, but the people <laughs> that enjoy it really enjoy it. For those that don't know, it's um, it's basically the the wine scene from The Princess Bride, except without yeah. the ability to cheat and just uh, train yourself to take poison. But there's some poison cards, there's some wine cards, and the dealer passes them out secretly, and then everyone goes around the table. So it's it's a three, it says three to eight on the package. I think it plays best in like seven to nine player range, so it works well with a big group. Yeah. Um, the dealer looks at cards, passes them out secretly to each player. And then on your turn, you just either drink your glass and die if it's poisoned and live if it's wine, or you swap with someone else. And that's it. That's the whole game. Um, I originally envisioned it as a two player game with one wine and one poison. And it was literally just, I'm going to put these in front of us and you're going to decide which one we drink. 
And then for the button shot, the first button shot contest, I was like, oh, I could just add more cards and it's 18 players. And that, that was it. That was the entire process. And I did not think it was that much of a game because I had never played it. And then the, uh, one of the judges thought it was interesting. It didn't even get into the finals, but one of the judges liked it, brought it to the finals testing. They're like, oh, crap, this is good. So they published it as a, as a nano game first and then as a wallet game. Uh, now it has a Ukrainian edition too. So it's, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I just got lucky with that. I don't know. I've tried to build a sequel to it and it's, it's impossible to get that kind of simplicity again. So I don't know. It's a, I was very lucky. That's, that's as much effort as I put into it. Wow. I'd actually never heard that story before, but I will say that in that game for me specifically, yes, it is kind of a chance whether you get the wine or the poison, but the real part of the game is the reveal. Like, it's just you having fun taunting people at the table and trying to pass them, trying to like negotiate with them. And like, it's, it's really reading the room. It's, it's not anything more than that. Yes. It's a flip of the coin on some level, but it's also playing the odds and watching certain people drink theirs and then calculating the odds now based on that. So there's a little bit of something there, but it's really just an excuse for people to drink wine and actually try to pass (laughs) some cards back and forth. And I think on some nights, that's a whole lot of fun. So count me as one of the people who likes that game. I'm not going to quite give it a nine, but it's a solid half seven for me. And with the right people or in a group setting, I think it's anything above a seven will bring up the BGG average. So I'm happy with that. Got to push those numbers. Those are rookie numbers. No, that's the the interesting thing about it is the, the whole premise that the, the dealer looks at it before they hand it out. Like the game falls apart without that. Now that that is a rule players playing by randomly shuffling and give them out still works. As long as that rule is yes. in place that they could have looked and they chose not to. And why'd they choose not to? What are the numbers? How many poisons do they put in here? And just the, the number right. of flips your brain goes through. It's amazing. I, I really, I don't understand how it works. I, the analysis we did on the episode, I think the best I can come up with is that it is the purest form of a game in that you have a decision and that decision is massively important. If you decide wrong, you lose and you're out of the game. If you decide right, you're not. But that's it. That's the yeah. entire game. It's it's a game brought down to the simplest simplest form of a single massively important decision. And I think that's okay. A lot of people seem to agree. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there's a, there's a clip from a, there's a British TV show called 8 Out of 10 Cats on Does Countdown. Countdown's like a numbers show that's big in the UK, and 8 Out of 10 Cats is a comedy group. And uh, if you guys know who Jimmy Carr is, yeah. he's this a famous comedian who hosts the show. And there was a clip of these two comedians, Sean Locke and another guy. Uh, I guess cause I like Sean Locke a lot. Um, but at the end of the episode, they got these two comedians together, just all these friends. And they played a game called carrot in a box. And literally <laughs> the game is they had this pedestal and there was two boxes in front of these comedians. And uh, one, one of the comedians got to look inside the box. And if there was a carrot inside, they won. And so one comedian looks at the box and says, you know, okay, the host is like, okay, do you want to keep your box? And they say yes or no. And so the, the, these comedians are master performers. And so the first time they did this, the guy's like, no, I don't want to keep my box. And the guy literally spent, it was almost like two, two and a half minutes trying to decide whether there was a carrot in the other person's <laughs> box or not. Now, the first time we did it, uh, they decided to switch and turns out the carrot was in the other box. And so the, other, the, the Sean Locke, the same guy, won. 
they actually did it again in a rematch. And, you know, if this was random, you expect, you know, the guy would have an equal amount of chance of uh, trying to get the carrot this time. But the same comedian, Sean Locke, looks at the box and says, you know, I want to keep it this time. And they have this great, I swear it was five minutes, they're going <laughs> back and forth trying to decide, you know, is the carrot in the box? And he decided to keep his box this time. And he opened it, it was empty, and Sean Locke had the carrot again. <laughs> and, you know, it, it taught me an important thing about designing these games. Like, it doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter too much what the concept of the game is in lots of ways. It matters how important is the decision you make in it, which is, you know, you know, the one player ha- knows everything. It's up to them to try to, you know, pretty much convince them to do what they want, manipulate them. And the manipulation, like was said before, we don't get to do it too often in real society without being frowned upon. But in games, it's totally okay. And that's and that's one reason I think games like The Resistance, Ibn Morte, Sheriff Nottingham, really uh, soar because it gives us opportunity to dig into these maybe deep, dark, low-key <laughs> feelings and bring them out. It's one of the few socially acceptable times it is to do the dark thing, to do the, the crazy thing, to do the evil thing with no consequence. So, yeah, I'm fully yeah, on board. Definitely. Like, for Nottingham, um, the way I play that game is I'm just looking to convince people of my lies. I don't play to win. But so I'll make the stupidest decisions. But if they believe me, I feel like I won the game. It doesn't matter if they found my apples or not. Well, I think the air is getting a little bit stale. We've dived really deep into social seduction and what makes them great. Chris has provided some, you know, great insight about what these games are and how they really provide an experience that a lot, a lot of games do nowadays because of their mechanical nature. So how about we uh, see what's on the radar and prepare for our reservice? What do you say, Andrew? So, on my radar, I have a, a couple things on my radar. I have some RPGs, but I talked about RPG last week. So today, I'm going to talk about mind management. And this is on my distant, distant radar. Because I actually don't have this game yet. I mean, one, this is another a sinful limb game in J. Cormier game, similar to mm-hmm. Junk Art. Um, great design team. Mind management is a hidden um, movement game, my favorite type of game. Um, based off of the mind management comic books. I'm not going to get too much into what that theme is. But basically, think of psychics, espionage. Type. It's like psychics meets James Bond, but a little more adult and you know, uh, dark, from my understanding. But um, I love hidden movement player games. I'm always looking for a good two-player hidden movement game, because it's just usually me and my wife. Uh, I've had this um, on my eye for a while, on my radar for a while. I just haven't been able to afford to get it. Either way, if I if I do some get a stroke of luck, I want this game. The shift system they have in it, where you can plug in modules in and out, just seems super fascinating to me. But that's what's on my radar, uh, Chris. What's on your radar? So I don't actually get a chance to play uh, published games very much because I focus so much on game design. So I'm in multiple design groups and working on all my own stuff. So what I'm looking forward to is finishing up the round one feedback for the contest, so I can get back to testing. Uh, Tempest Imperium Eternum, because I really need to get to testing that so I can get it published. <laughs> but it's, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a roll and write game where you don't have to roll anything. You just use the date and time Ooh. to generate a six-digit number that is the seed that generates the map and also determines your actions you can use for free. Um, and then you use that and go through five rounds? Five rounds? I think it's still five rounds. Yeah, five rounds, and you're trying to build up your empire and build castles and 
get various points in uh, in a very roll and write style game. But the uh, the twist for this version is I've procedurally generated maps, so I can generate uh, I think it's five hundred fifty thousand unique maps. So each of those wow. are going to be a stretch goal. That's the plan. That's pretty impressive. So the game you play at eight thirty five is different than the game you play at nine oh two. Very cool. Interesting. So on my uh, radar is Ark Nova. I finally have my copy in hand, and my wife and I are big fans of Terraforming Mars, so I am looking forward to playing Terraforming <laughs> Zoos. So that's um, my biggest uh, look forward at this point. I'm super excited about it. I have to learn how to play still, but uh, I'm super excited. I, I've never quite understood. Maybe you guys can explain to me. Why are there so many comparisons between Ark Nova and Terraforming Mars? They're engine builders. Deck is a good starting point, but also it's the way that the cards interact with each other and the engine building aspect that goes along with it. I'm looking forward to finding out more than that, but that's what I understand as far as I know right now. Do you think it'll hit number one on BGG? I, I have to play to find <laughs> out. I haven't had a chance. I've still got the shrink wrap on it for another five minutes, probably. I hope not. Why? <laughs> I, I I think personally I think it's a little ridiculous that it's shot up this far this fast. I think that this is a prime example of the hype train just kind of taking a game to the top of the BGG system. And I really think that there should be more to the top ten than what is most popular right now. What no, much as I like the guy as far as who is Tom Vassell says it's great. I mean, that's what happened. Tom Bassel exploded about this game, and it kind of just shot off from there. Everyone started getting it. People who haven't played it are rating this game 9 and 10 just because of that yeah. review. And I really think that games should – I think time ha- needs to be a factor how long it's been there. I think Gloomhaven's a great number one right now. It's been there for well, Why is it a, a great number one? It only got up there because Tom Vassell said it was great. Yeah, it wasn't just Tom Vassell, though, was it? It was more than Tom Vassell. <laughs> and I actually have, I, I haven't seen the review, so I'm going to play the fifth. <laughs> Right. <laughs> he said it was the only solo game he ever wanted to play or something like that. He hates solo games, but he was playing that solo. I think, well, the reason I think Gloomhaven is a rightful number one, I never even played Gloomhaven, but I think it's a rightful number one because it's stayed up. It's I mean, it's been there for like what, three or four years at this point. I don't think so. It's, okay. Maybe it has been three years because there was a pandemic or is a pandemic. Yeah, so the last two years don't count. Yeah. <laughs> we all know that time holds in on itself at that point. So yes. Um, but here's the thing, Josh, about the hype train, right? Like, I'm fine with that as far as what you're talking about. But but once the game gets played and out in the public and it's been out for a while, the hype train gets nullified. We've seen lots of games that get on the hype train, get hyped up high, and then hit the tables, and it fizzles and dies quickly. So I disagree entirely. I, I, will, I will concede that I think that the board game geek top 10 or top 20 or whatever not should be a level less recency biased but at the same time i think those games that hit those they earn it i don't think it's just one review or even two reviews or even three reviews that get it there i think people are playing these games and going to visit them and checking it out and and responding in kind so there's no way to luck into or market your game into the top 10 you can market your way into it for a week or two weeks but after that you earn it you know, I'll concede. I'll concede. I think that's a great point. So to your point, it being a popularity contest, which it definitely is 100% and not necessarily based of on course. the quality of the game at all. Um, but the the secret algorithm they use to rank the games is not just the rating. It is some complex system that more 
more ratings is more valuable than higher ratings. Mm. So if you look at the actual ratings for games in order, there are higher rated games that are ranked lower because they don't have as many votes. And then I think it also factors in who is voting. Um, And a recent thing I just saw Mm -hmm. is that your ranking can actually shift in categories. So you might be like the third best social deduction game in the overall ranking, but you're the number one game in the social deduction category. And that is somehow based Mm -hmm. on different people voting for it that have a different weight of vote in different categories. Um, And maybe it makes sense. I don't know. It's a secret algorithm, but it's definitely complex, but still it's, it's just a popularity contest. And I think anything in the top thousand is good and nothing deserves to be number one. I agree. And it's just a tool. So use it as a tool. They should just blank out the top 10 spots. Well, uh, <laughs> I think that's a good, that's a good way. I've been put in my place, and <laughs> we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and resurface now. Awesome. Well, Chris, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the submarine today. I've enjoyed all the conversation we've had, Andrew. Thank you for making this possible. This has just been a great. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chris. If people want to connect with you or learn more about you as a person or as a designer. Um, so easiest, if you go to Twitter, I'm, oh, what am I? Crap. Uh, Blue Cube BGS. Uh, I've been, I've got too many Twitter handles. Um, so the Board Game Workshop also, if you go to theboardgameworkshop.com, that has the podcast episodes and all the stuff about the contest. On Twitter, that's the BG Workshop because it's too many letters. Also, if you're interested in uh, Tempest Imperium, Eternum or anything else I'm doing with my publishing company. That's Ventic Games, which is V-E-N-N-T-I-K games.com and Ventic Games on Twitter. But I'm very bad at Twitter for that account. So yeah, um, the Board Game Workshop usually finds me. That's the more unique thing I have. So, But I'm around. I'm in things. I'm on the internet. Also, if we mentioned already, uh, round one is done, but round two is starting up in September. So if you're listening to it between now and then, jump in and do judging. I think I saw I, I should really know this, but I don't right now. I think it's something like that. It's about a month from now for them to get it ready. Hmm. Yeah. I don't have my computer in front of me. Judging to September really? okay. 3rd. So yep. we have more time than I thought. That's good. Thank you for looking that up. I don't know if our conversations have dissuaded you from me volunteering as no, a judge. No, you definitely should. Well, I guess we'll find out. Everyone first. should volunteer as a judge as long as they can okay. give kind feedback. You just got to be nice. That's it. And like yes. board games. Well, on top of that, I think you learn a lot about the other side of the equation. Like if you put on a publisher hat and and just think of things in that direction, even if you're a designer, it's an interesting thought process to watch other people pitch to you and learn from that process. So yeah, I highly recommend it. definitely that. interesting seeing it. I, I mean, I get to see it from a lot of angles because I see behind the scenes of all the voting too. So I get to see how different judges interpret stuff. And it's very interesting to see like the same video can be taken so many different ways. And then taking that as a creator myself and knowing that, Whatever I do in a video, it's going to be taken so many different ways. Awesome. Well, listeners, thank you for so much listening to the Tabletop Submarine Podcast. You know, the, if you want to support the podcast, best way to do that, share it with your friends about the podcast, directing towards an episode you'd like. We have a Facebook, like us on Facebook, share our posts. We try to post a couple times a week, um, sharing our insights or what we're thinking about as far as board games. Uh, we want to see this grow. Andrew and I want to keep sharing stories. You know, this is something we we believe in and we want to make it work, but it's not possible without listeners like you. So please 
share, join the Discord, see where we post our announcements and stuff like that. Um, we really appreciate you listening in today. Well, thank you guys so much. We appreciate the time you've given us. Chris, it's been awesome. You guys, <laughs> it's too hot in this room. My, my AC is still dead. Well, as always, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Andrew, it's been a delight. Oh my gosh, I'm just messing this up right now. Holy cow. See, on my podcast, I would keep all of these takes and just let it fade out. I gave up on editing a long time ago. <laughs> Andrew, have a, I, I am just messing up. Andrew, please just take us out. Holy cow. <laughs> Open this hatch up. <laughs> See, it's thematic. It is <laughs> Poor guy needs some air. Um, I do. All right. <laughs> Thank you, listeners, for joining us on the podcast. We had a great time. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Have a great night.